0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Good evening, uh, everybody. So, very delighted to welcome uh, the Lord Mayor of uh, Dublin, Councillor uh, Mihol uh, McDonagh, um, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it really is uh, uh, so lovely to see you here this evening for our behind the headlines on the future of uh, policing. We're here in the Sing uh, Lecture uh, Theatre, um, uh, but I'm actually the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is that modern white building uh, just uh, uh, off the ramp as you go into um, uh, towards the book of Kells. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. And for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the Long Room Hub, we do three things in there. The first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we do is promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And then the final thing that we do is take the learning of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And really, that brings us to these sorts of signature events, these behind the headlines, where we pick an issue that is very much in the headlines, and we then uh, 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 create a forum for robust, respectful debates uh, that add the insights and perspectives that the arts and humanities uh, uh, can, can bring. Um, I'm very delighted that these behind the headlines are uh, supported by the John uh, Pollard Foundation. Without this sort of support, we just couldn't uh, uh, do these sorts of uh, events. Now, policing is a major issue around the world. Here in Ireland, obviously, it's also a major issue. And the future of uh, uh, policing Uh, commission set up in May 2017 has a mandate to carry out a fundamental review of policing in Ireland and develop a plan for its future. The commission is due to report in September 2018 that's not very far away Kathleen I'm sure you're you're looking forward to that Um, and is expected to deliver recommendations uh, 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 meeting. The strong public appetite for significant change. So, I suspect tonight we will get a taster of uh, uh, some of uh, uh, those recommendations, some of uh, uh, the work that the Commission has been doing. But the whole purpose of tonight, as well, is to put that in a much wider context. So, to look at the events of Ireland uh, in a wider uh, historical context and then in a wider uh, global context. Um, I'm going to introduce each of our four speakers now and then I will hand the floor over to our speakers. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our format, it's really very straightforward. Each of our speakers has nine minutes Um, and nine minutes is nine minutes uh, 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 and uh, I'm the timekeeper here Uh, and then it's over to you for questions and uh, answers and hopefully uh, we'll have plenty of time for discussion uh, and debate uh, but I promise you we'll be done by half past eight so uh, you know that uh, uh, if you've got that next engagement or rushing off to dinner we'll we'll definitely be done by 830 so, I'd now like to introduce our four speakers this evening, and it's with great pleasure. Our first speaker I, uh, I'll introduce is my colleague, Professor Eunan O'Halpin, who is the Professor of Contemporary Irish History here at Trinity. Um, his research interests are extremely broad uh, and include Irish and British 20th century political uh, 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 history. Uh, He's extremely interested in uh, the history of intelligence uh, and terrorism in the 20th century, not just in these islands, but uh, 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 globally. Um, Our second speaker this evening is uh, Mary Rogan. She's Professor of Law at Trinity, and she leads a project uh, funded by the European Research Council on the Oversight of Prisons, and she's the chairperson of the Implementation and Oversight Group on reforms uh, to penal policy. So thank you, Mary. Uh, our third speaker has come all the way from Harvard, Dr. Antonio Oftelli, uh, who's the Executive Director of uh, Leadership for a Networked World Technology and Entrepreneurship Centre, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, uh, at Harvard. uh, And he's also a member of the Commission on the Future of Policing. And um, Antonio, I appreciate that you've been over for other business, but it really is fabulous that you've come uh, uh, here this evening. We're particularly uh, uh, delighted to have you. Uh, We're also absolutely thrilled um, that Kathleen uh, O'Toole is on our panel. Uh, Kathleen O'Toole is the chair of the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland. She served on the Patton uh, Commission, which developed a new blueprint for policing in Northern Ireland uh, almost uh, 20 years ago. I'm from Belfast, and um, uh, I think we all watched uh, uh, with with great admiration for the work uh, that was carried out uh, there. But Kathleen is a practitioner, she's a career police officer and lawyer who rose uh, through the ranks of policing in the US um, uh, and she served as the first chief inspector of the Garda-Shahana uh, Shahana Inspectorate as well. So an extraordinarily, excuse me, accomplished individual. But I'm also particularly proud that she is about to be a graduate of this university. I'm not entirely sure where she finds the time, but she's doing a PhD uh, with us here uh, in, in Trinity. So, as I say, I'm going to now hand the floor over to our four speakers who will speak in the order that I introduced them, and then we will open uh, the floor to discussion. Um, I I would encourage you to put your mobile phones to silent, but do feel free to tweet um, uh, using the hashtag hubmatters. It's it's here on the uh, uh, screen, because you know it 's always great if, if, if there 's a, a discussion um, uh, uh, on social media as well the uh, sadly we weren 't able to broadcast online this evening we 've issues with our cameras however, we will be podcasting uh, the uh, a- event as well so without further ado, Professor Huffman, union Thank you.
2: Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, thank you Jane, you can stop me after about an hour, okay? Uh, before I begin, can I make, a, make, a, make a, a public declaration, which is about my background? I'm the grand, grandson of a, of a guard of the sergeant called Hugh Hateney. He was one of the first uh, members of the force, at least he was recruited in early 1923. The reason he became a guard of the sergeant was quite simple. He'd been an IRA officer in County Down, and he had to leave in 1922. And, in, and that brings, it, brings us into the point about policing in Ireland, which is that there is a political dimension to it. Uh, which is not present in many other uh, uh, municipal, in particular, police forces across the world or Europe and so on. And part of Garda culture is inherently involved uh, with. With, with politics, and I don't mean just local fix it, uh, fixer ticket politics, of which is an enormous amount for which politicians, as much as guards, must be held accountable, uh, but in terms, in terms of, of how they see the world and how they, they attempt to interact with and manage the community, of which they have been very much part historically, rather than cut off from, like, say, the French police, uh, the various French police forces in their fortified barracks around the country. Um, and also, I think we have to remember in considering what needs to be done to policing in Ireland, two things. One is all the evidence of public expectations of the Gaelish Call is that they do more in a sense of what they used to do than that they do less. No, almost nobody wishes them to sit behind, in front of a computer screen more, put in more data, analyse more trends and so on. The, the demand constantly, and not only in rural Ireland, is for police on the street, it's for, it's for police at the crossroads. And the difficulty for us academics, uh, for us theoreticians, in particular for people uh, pushing clever software and the like, is that in Ireland, the culture of policing is intimately bound up with the sense of the locality and reading the locality right. It's also bound up, we know, with the abuse of power. It's bound up with all sorts of difficult uh, things that have to be addressed, but it's there and we can't lose sight of that. And don't throw out uh, the link, the public link with policing, the, that baby, don't throw that out with, 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 the, with the bath water, the dirty bath water of which we're seeing so much. I think secondly, we have to remember that the Garda Chaconne has, I, 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 you know, I grew up in the 60s. I was a student uh, uh, for most of the 1970s in the midst of the Northern Ireland Troubles. And it is thanks to the Garda Chaconne and the Defence Forces, uh, to a large extent, that uh, uh, we now have a, a Sinn Féin uh, Lord Mayor of Dublin, uh, rather than, uh, 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 you know, a, a Republican Gaullite,er over the whole of Ireland. In other words, the, the if they even if they wished to address the issues of internal organisation and so on, had also to defend the state. And I'll give an example: uh, Sergeant Jerry McCabe, who remember the name, who was uh, murdered by the IRA, defenceless, effectively, in the early 1990s. At his funeral. One of his friends, one of his relations said, made an extraordinary statement. He said, Jerry was a really decent man, blah, blah, blah. He said, if you ever had a problem with the ticket or anything, he'd look after it. I thought, oh, for God's sake. You know, uh, uh, so, and that, that reflected, nobody commented, that reflected, for good or ill, a kind of a public expectation that whatever about Jane's ticket, and she deserved it, you know, you'd do something for me if you could. And it's politicians, just as much as, as people within the force, uh, who have pers- c- continued uh, with that mentality. I think, secondly, we have to recognise not how little the guardy has changed, but how amazing the changes have been. We have a Gardaí inspectors. Uh, which I think it's what it's at eight or nine years not even that in existence we now have a police authority which years ago I wrote about as needed uh, headed by a very capable uh, chairperson uh, we we have um we have a, 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 a the complaints. Uh, Process and we have GSOC, which I won't comment on. I think uh, they got some egg on their faces a couple of years ago uh, due to their paranoia about bugging, which may in fact reflect their frustration with dealing with the guards. But anyway, so there have been very, very considerable changes. You have very considerable changes in guard, the training and education. And you have some but not enough changes in, 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 in issues to do with representing the new communities, relations uh, with the travelling community, and ver- various other very pressing issues. I think it's amazing, but typical of Ireland and of media frenzies, that we've just lost the first woman, Gar, the Commissioner, in circumstances which I remain baffled at. And I suspect it will become more baffling, not less baffling, as time goes on. And I give you the instance, who remembers the Duggan case? How many people can explain the Duggan case? Almost nobody here, I'm not being ageist, you all look too young anyway to remember it. But that was the case used to bring down the Reynolds Spring Coalition in 1994. And at the time nobody knew what it meant, a week later it had disappeared. And to some extent we are getting a succession, albeit on on foot of extraordinary uh, uh, revelations relating to... uh, uh, pulling of, of of points relating to the, the the drink driving and so on, but to some extent these these, these some of these are coming and going. <coughs> they've resulted in the, the depart effective departure of two secretary generals of the Department of Justice. The first of whom, when a civil, public servant in another uh, department, actually, was actually shot for doing his duty as a social welfare officer. Uh, they've resulted in the departure of two commissioners who who you know who in turn led led the fight against. Uh, varieties of terrorism indigenous or otherwise the 1980s and 1990s and god knows what what they're going to do next and a lot of the criticism that comes to, uh, uh, of, of the guard that should call it, it takes no heed no heed uh, of 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 the role which they played in defending the state from within uh, in in this in the 70s the 80s and the 90s And i think that's unfortunate do i have i run out of time Jeez. two minutes um uh, I'll I, I just, I just finish though by saying if you look uh, across, across uh, the developed world and don't go to places like India, for example, where you look at policing there and you're know, you just, you're just a, you're lucky you're white and a visitor, right? But look look at, look, at, look at policing even in a country like Denmark, which is small, civilised, about our size. All the police have guns, my limited interaction with them, which are fine, they're friendly, but they have a, an authoritarian approach. Uh, almost, uh, 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 I think policing in Ireland, it may be casual, it may be, it may be feckless, it may be very unfair to travellers, uh, to, to socioeconomic <coughs> disadvantaged groups which obviously needs to be addressed and managed. But I think in terms of interaction with the police, it is far less authoritarian, say, than British constabularies to whom I've had to report various, uh, <coughs> a couple of traffic accidents and one drunken assault upon me <coughs> as I was a cyclist, he was a motorist, uh, and, and so on. And I do think that, that, that there are cultural values in, in, in the way the police typically interact with, with the public on a one-to-one basis, which mustn't be lost as they learn to master whatever new software as they learn to follow 553 new protocols uh, before you could, before you can uh, put handcuffs on somebody or whatever. So I'm afraid I'm <clears throat> by and large a fan of police reform, but I'm not 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 a fan of des- des- destroying a force. Uh, the valid the, the underlying f- expectation for the public of which is more of what we used to get rather than uh, some sort of robocops. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Good evening. During the late 1940s and into the 1950s, Ireland was in receipt of some funds under the Marshall Plan. And in an early example of a demanding requirement from a funder for an impact statement, each government department was obliged to give an account of its activities each year. And the Department of Justice, as with the other departments, produced its report annually. And year on year, the Department of Justice then a remarkably small section of government and a deeply cautious place reported back in the following terms, no activities worthy of note. In 1952, the then Secretary of the Department of Justice wrote, our activities, important though they may be, have no popular appeal. All things considered, I think the less said about our plans, the better. <laughs> and I suspect many of the policymakers of today would feel some understandable envy towards their predecessors of 60 years ago. The challenges facing policing today are, of course, internally and from without, our com- they're complex and many. And Policing in the criminal justice system generally needs a policy-making framework which is robust, resilient and which allows for best practice to be discerned and to be implemented. And I want to focus my remarks on that policy-making environment to place what is happening in policing within a wider context of the criminal justice system in Ireland and to make a few proposals for how to improve the way in which we make policy in this area. What happens in policing takes place, of course, against the background of what happens in criminal justice policymaking more generally. And if we focus on the period since the 1970s in particular, we see the looming and consequential presence of the Troubles. And we've already heard about the consequences of this for the relationship between the police and the policed. But it also had profound effects on the way in which policymaking was conducted in the state This influence goes right back to our independence, but it intensified in the 1970s. And the Department of Justice became a quite insular place, wary of outsiders, very reluctant to engage with interested observers, viewing all through the lenses of suspicion and subversion. And I think this history in part explains the perception that security, the security dimensions of the Department's work has been so powerful in how the department conducts its business across the board. And this has led, I think, to a certain dominance of policing concerns and prioritisation of the relationship between policing and the department, as well as a long-standing insularity in its outlook. Another salient feature of the policy-making landscape in many ways falls out of this environment also, and that's a lack of engagement with data and research. And we have also often been re- reactive, I think, rather than proactive in responding to the challenges we face in criminal justice. We expanded our prison capacity, for example, dramatically during the 1990s without doing any projections or modelling about what that needed capacity was, or indeed what the drivers behind an increasing prison population might be. And of course we can't lose the local connection, the importance of the quality of the individual one-on-one relationship but I certainly advocate for more use of information to be able to answer the big questions about policing and to make sure that local relationship is as good as it can be. And in this respect the the systems the Garda Shea has set up are actually ahead of its peers in many respects. The structures are ahead. The Garda Analysis Service provides analysis of data to support operational policing. And we do not yet see similar units in, for example, the Irish Prison Service, the Court Service or the Probation Service. At the same time, of course, we also need to see a renewed focus and major confidence-building measures in the use of data and statistics within the service. These, then, are three key features of the policy-making landscape which policing has been shaped by in the last uh, five decades. Uh, an insular, a security-focused mindset, a reactive rather than proactive style of planning, and a less than optimal use of research and evidence. And I want to assess where we are now and to posit that the policymaking landscape of the present day gives a good deal of hope concerning the necessary reforms to how we organise policing here 2011 was something of a stock market crash for Irish criminal justice policy. The money had run out, but so also, it seemed had the creativity and the ideas. The crisis, however, sparked what I think is a new period in our criminal justice policymaking history. In 2012, the then Minister for Justice and Equality, Alan Shatter, established a strategic review of penal policy with the intimidating task of conducting an all-encompassing review of this policy, involving an examination of all aspects of penal policy, including the prevention of crime. And that report made 43 separate recommendations about lots of things, but perhaps most critically, it called for a new penal policy, stating that penal policy has evolved as a result of piecemeal policies aimed at specific types of offences or offenders rather than a singular coherent policy with the sole aim of making Ireland a safer place. That review placed a great deal of emphasis on the importance of crime prevention. And crucially, and borne out in a not uncommon experience of dusty reports on lonely departmental shelves, it also recommended an implementation oversight mechanism to be set up with the task of reporting on the progress being made or not being made concerning each recommendation. I'm not aware of any similar mechanism being established in the area of penal policy in the past. Its establishment also reflects an understanding that many of the recommendations in this area for improving policing, for improving criminal justice policy, they require a time period for implementation which does not conform to political cycles in many instances and requires a long-term effort. The review group strongly encouraged the creation of a better policy-making landscape. It noted that the experience of many jurisdictions is that penal policy is best created in an environment which prioritises interagency cooperation, is based on evidence, involves appropriate deliberation and the input of experts, and one which also is conducted in a responsible and measured way and which keeps the long-term purposes of the criminal justice system in its focus. This exhortation applies to policing and its place within the broader criminal justice network That call by the Penal Policy Review Group I think represents a different outlook on criminal justice policy making and how it should work here. It's part of a network of related calls from the Toland Report which found both a widening remit within the Department of Justice and Equality and something of a culture of secrecy to have permeated out of security and policing issues into other aspects of its work, to the reviews of policing conducted by the Garda Inspectorate to the development of the first ever strategic plans for the Irish Prison Service and the Probation Service. And all of these developments, I think, show that we're in a rare policy window, which allows us to step back from the rush and the pressure of the urgent and the now, and to ask, what is it we want from criminal justice policy, and what structures do we need to get it? And it may well be more of the same, but at least we'll be able to answer those questions uh, properly. There is a lot in what these reports tell us that we are not happy to see and which gives us cause for profound concern, but at least we are living in a time when we are seeing them. I'm also encouraged by the public consultation process which the Commission on the Future of Policing is currently engaged in. So my hopes for the future of policing and criminal justice policy making more generally are more engagement with research and the better use of good quality data and information, more working with other agencies and with others from outside the criminal justice system to focus on the factors which cause crime and which can prevent its occurrence, the social policy factors, the economic factors, for example. More openness to outside scrutiny and a robust and publicly accountable implementation plan for any reforms which emerge. And we are a long way, indeed, from the 1950s world of no activities worthy of note. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Good evening. I'd like to thank Trinity College and the long room for uh, inviting me over uh, overseas here to come uh, speak with you all. Um, I had the pleasure of, of stopping by Trinity once last year and went to the library over here. Now, I'll tell you, I'm kind of a library snob a little bit. So Harvard has Widener libraries. If you ever get a chance to come see Widener, you must. It was named after... Uh, a young student who, unfortunately, was uh, lost in the Titanic as it was coming over. His family donated their part of their library and some resources. But that being said, when I walked into your library here, I was stunned. It's the most beautiful one that I've seen in the world, so congratulations on that. Um, what I like to do in libraries is think a bit about the future. Uh, oftentimes I think about things that keep me up at night and give me some stress and some heartburn a little bit. And so that's what I want to talk briefly about is what I see happening in the future potentially and what we can do in our world now and our generation to start mitigating some things and bringing some new things uh, to life. So imagine that you have a pot on the stove and it's starting to bubble a little bit, it's simmering a bit, and pretty soon it's going to boil over. Your job is to make sure you modulate that, to turn it up or down, to make sure that we're getting enough new things coming forward to lead to good outcomes, but also... Keep it from boiling over to having someone get burned. That's what's happening right now, now and in the future, when it comes to public safety and policing, particularly with the convergence of artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, uh, and the Internet of Things. And I'll explain that a little bit. Um, Some quick definitions. I know most of you here are pretty up to speed on this, but artificial intelligence in general is machines that can mimic cognitive functions that humans uh, are known for, uh, such as learning and problem-solving is what I, the definition for tonight. Machine learning is closely related to that, and it really deals with the ability for computers to learn new things. Uh, robotics is, of course, the application of electrical engineering and uh, uh, mechanical engineering, computer science, et cetera, to automate physical tasks. And the Internet of Things is a network of physical infrastructure, sensors, devices, things like homes and appliances that are connected to uh, the web that can generate massive amounts of data. Now... They each are powerful in their own right, but the power of them uh, completely in public safety resides in the convergence of them. And the capabilities to open up new ways, new operating models for public safety and policing that can do some dramatic new things. So the promise is bright as, you know, policing is under entire, uh, incredible pressure to deliver more outcomes. Uh, the nature of crime is changing quite dramatically. The depth of crime, the width of crime and what organizations like the Garda have to respond to. So the new business models that are opened up by this convergence will bring new capacity to organizations like the Garda and to police forces and uh, public safety organizations around the world. They'll be better, faster, and cheaper uh, in many ways. But the peril is there as well, and that can be somewhat dark, and that's what keeps me up at night, in that the data, the algorithms, the rules, the sensors, and the networks that underwrite all of this work have tremendous potential negative impact on civil liberties, on social equity, and on public trust. Take first predictive policing as an example. The technology uses a range of of data points and uh, statistical modeling to decide block by block or neighborhood by neighborhood what areas at highest risk of crime or some type of public safety threat Now, predictive policing on the good side could drive a lot of efficiency and effectiveness in the way we police. It opens up the the capacity for us, for example, to take guards and officers in cities and move them to the front lines to do more community policing, to engage with the public more. It frees up resources. But it also is based on things that may be problematic in that much of the data that resides in the systems uh, that we look at for predictive policing are retrospective in nature, at least for now. So the data is coming from past patterns. It's coming from uh, past examples of crime. Uh, maybe there is higher concentrations in one area, and that's what's feeding into those algorithms. So there is some potential there for uh, humans that have implicitly or maybe explicitly have bias uh, against certain groups of people to monitor and target that. So we're going to have to find a balance when it comes to that. Another example is departments are, are increasingly using network analysis to predict prevent or solve criminal activity. Uh, Now this is nothing new, police have been using network analysis for a long time, usually whiteboards on a piece of paper where they're writing connections between people and who knows who. But now in the future, police will be able to use artificial intelligence to do that much more rapidly and in real time. So there's a phenomenon known as context collapse where our lives, and most of you are familiar with this now, our lives online and offline are starting to come together. Much of our interactions are driven by that context collapse So public safety organizations will be increasingly looking at how do we understand that context that people are operating within. And so they'll be able to predict with artificial intelligence what's going to happen potentially next. So this is great, as police will be able to free up resources again and save money. Uh, Instead of having exhaustive human-based investigation, they can do that automatically with machines. But it has real-life implications, one example is a young man uh, from Harlem, uh, this was a couple of years ago, who found himself incarcerated in Rikers Island prison uh, for 19 months, including 9 months in solitary confinement. Now what did he do? He was online. Much of the gang activity in New York City is now is being tracked via social media and networks. Uh, not quite yet with machine learning, but it's getting there. So an incident happened uh, in, that, in the area that he lived in where someone was, uh, was shot and killed. It happened to be that this young man was the brother of one of the gang members and had liked one of the posts from a gang member on that particular incident that this happened. So he was rounded up and charged with accessory to this crime. Um, Charged with it, spent time in jail. Eventually this was dismissed was thrown out. But it shows you the implications of machine learning, of prediction, of network analysis, of this contextual collapse. There's a lot of great abilities that we have there, but also some really dire consequences if we don't manage it well. Uh, as a final example, uh, and to build a bit on, on the RoboCop example, uh, last year, many of you may have seen in the news in Dallas, Texas, we had a, a horrible uh, incident there with an individual who was, was uh, targeting police officers and had, had shot uh, a number of them. Uh, and what happened there is the police uh, eventually cordoned this man off and used a robot to go in and detonate a bomb killing that perpetrator. Now, of course, a lot of lives potentially were saved with this, and uh, humans didn't have to use the judgment for lethal force you know, up close. So there's also a number of firms testing this for things like robots that can uh, monitor public settings or malls or airports or whatnot. Um, in time, that's gonna free up space. It's gonna uh, allow us to do more things in policing, but It also might have some dire consequences when we're looking at the capabilities that can be embedded not too much further in the future, five years, ten years. If you combine that robot with uh, things like facial recognition, with sound recognition, with network analysis, so it can see this person over here and know who that person associates with, all in real time, and can start to make judgments, which is interesting. So if we look across those examples, we can see a trend. And increasing the convergence of these technologies will enable machines and networks to sense, then to make decisions, and then to act on those decisions in autonomous ways if we so let them. And you can imagine some of the implications from that. So all of this has to be balanced with two imperatives right now in policing. The first is around maximizing public value. Uh, We measure that generally by the outcomes, such as reductions in crime and fear, it's maximized when resources are allocated efficiently, as we all know, and effectively. And it recognizes that crime is elastic, that depending on the number of resources we put against it, we can, mod, you know, we can move crime trends up or down, theoretically. And so we want to drive as much public value as possible. We want these technologies to help us do that. We want to save lives. But there's also the second element, and that is police forces, public safety organizations around the world have to generate public trust. And so citizen confidence and trust rest on the idea that in a democracy, a public institution must be viewed as legitimate in public safety, and this requires a commitment to equal protection under the law, to observing and protecting civil liberties. And so there are methods there that we can put in place for procedural justice and fairness, but we have to view that and, and start working on the equitable and transparent ways that we move forward. So... I bring these out to you as examples of what the future may bring, and that's already happening now in some ways, in that the pace of this change is going to be dependent upon all of us dictating uh, what the pace of that is, uh, how we decide to move forward with this. There are three, you know, generally there's a lot of questions we can plug into, but there are three that really uh, I think we need to hone in on. The first is, how can policing organizations leverage this newfound capacity from these advanced technologies while mitigating the impact on civil liberties and, and social equity. So that's number one. It's a big driver that we have to think about. The second, then, is what form of governance and transparency can we uh, put in place to ena- enable what we call algorithmic justice? So much of this uh, technology is based on algorithms that we as humans create, but in the future, that machines will also create. So we have to be at the forefront of thinking about how do we create bias free. Uh, mechanisms, uh, solutions to make sure that we impart in these algorithms and these machines uh, uh, elements to them that keep them safe and fair. And the third was how should the efficiency and effectiveness that drive the public value from all these technologies be measured in the digital world against this idea of public trust? So where are we going to land with that? If we move too fast and public trust starts to erode, uh, we're going to be in a very bad position where policing will not be legitimate. And we can't have that happen. If we move too slow, we can also lose legitimacy in policing, and that we will not get the results that society wants from our public safety organizations. So much is at stake. Uh, How society responds to this promise and peril of emerging technology will define the future of policing legitimacy. And I think we must act in time. And so you may stay up all night long thinking about this. (laughs) Thank Thank you.
4: First, I'd like to say thank you very much to Jane and the Room Hub for this extraordinary opportunity to learn. I, I'm, I've learned a good deal already this evening, and hopefully to contribute. Um, I had the opportunity to attend your event last month on Brexit, and uh, it was just a phenomenal event. So thank you very much. Um, I was, uh, I'm was i the career cop on the panel here, so um, I thought I'd, I'd um, focus on two things this evening. First of all, I'll give you a perspective of the evolution that's occurred in policing just since I've been in the business. Where hearing demands for police reform on both sides of the Atlantic, but um, I've seen policing evolve significantly since I've been in the business, and I think it's important to highlight what policing is really all about. Um, you know, We watch television, and we see gunfights and car chases, and we see the police enforcing the law, uh, but policing goes well beyond that. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about my personal experience in policing uh, in the United States, but also here in Ireland when I served uh, as the Chief Inspector of the Garda Inspectorate. And then I want to talk uh, more specifically about our work and what we hope to accomplish between now and September and what we hope to deliver at the end of the day. So um, I started in the business uh, way back in 1979, never had any uh, notion whatsoever of becoming a police officer until my law school classmates (laughs) dared me to do it. Um, They thought it would be an interesting opportunity to see the law from a different perspective. So I thought, you know, I'll do this for a year or two, and then I'll move on and practice law full time. So I went to a police academy environment, and I was trained to be a soldier, a foot soldier in the war on crime you know, go out there and fight that war on crime. And we spent a lot of time doing physical exercises and marching around the academy. And, and, and then we went out into the field prepared to fight this war on crime. And we raced around in cars and we answered 911 calls. And we were measured by how fast we got there, how many people we arrested, how many people we cautioned, uh, what our crime statistics, how many detections we had. And that was fine because law enforcement is an important component of policing, but we spent far more time responding to people in need. We had the opportunity to deliver babies and to save lives and to help people who are in mental health crisis and to deal with people who had severe addiction issues or go into families, into homes, and deal with people who with domestic violence and, 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 and child abuse and And we did far more of that work than we did law enforcement. In fact, I refuse to to refer to a police agency as a police force because force is such a small percentage. Force and enforcement is such a small percentage of what we do. In policing, we provide a service. And in order to do it right, we have to consider it a vocation, not just a job. So I was into this for about six months when I realized I found my vocation. And, yeah, it was exciting to make a big arrest. You know, I worked as a robbery decoy and set myself up in subway stations waiting to get robbed every day. But that was a very small percentage of what I did over the course of my career. And policing here in Ireland would be very similar in that respect. In fact, I say right now that some of the biggest challenges we're facing in policing on both sides of the Atlantic uh, will be at the intersection of criminal justice and public health. Uh, I spent much more time, more, more recently, as the police chief in Seattle, dealing with issues around addiction and homelessness and mental health crisis than I did on crime fighting. So uh, yeah, I just think it's important that we put uh, put it in the proper context. And no, I wouldn't be one who said, "Oh, that's not the police. That's not the job of the police," because sometimes the police are the only ones available, twenty four seven. We did find out as we raced around in those cars and those fast cars and made arrests, that reacting to, to a crisis, reacting to a crime, wasn't good enough. We had to join with partners and, and government agencies, uh, with NGOs, the private sector, on multidisciplinary approaches that focused on prevention and intervention, with enforcement as a last resort. You know, Enforcement will always be an important role of the police, but prevention and intervention are equally important. And I came to this side of the, uh, I was lured away from Boston in 2006 to come to this side of the Atlantic to uh, work in the Guard Inspectorate as the first chief inspector. And I'll say this, that on this side of the Atlantic, police accountability, external oversight of police, is far more developed than it is in most places in the United States. In fact, I took many of the lessons I learned in Northern Ireland on the Patent Commission and here in the Republic of Ireland um, in the inspectorate role, I took those lessons back to North America and applied them there. I'm a staunch advocate of external oversight of the police, and I think the police should embrace and welcome that uh, because it, it, and, and also transparency, because if we don't have the trust in the support of our communities, will fail. And so it's absolutely essential that, that we build that, that trust. When I arrived uh, in Ireland in 2006, uh, some uh, friendly media person stuck a microphone in my uh, face on first day and said, oh, you're from America, now sure you'll recommend that the first thing we do is uh, arm the police here. And I said, on the contrary, I'm so envious that the Guard of Chicanha is an organization that's been a routinely unarmed police service, and long may that last. You know, I worry about guards who are out there in an environment where guns and gangs are becoming more prevalent, but certainly there must be things we can do to enhance their safety without resorting to, routine, to a uh, routinely armed service. And I just want to emphasize that uh, we have a, an extraordinary commission working here, many people from this island, but also others from uh, North America and beyond. And we all understand that it's important to consider the context in which we're working and to respect the history of the Garda Shukana, to respect the history of this state, and to culture-proof any recommendations that we may make to fit into this environment. So our commission was established in, uh, in May... And yes, it was in the aftermath of newspaper stories and controversies. But we said, no, we're stepping aside. Our remit is to step aside from the day-to-day controversies and to focus on the future. So yes, we'll be mindful of the past and the ongoing um, events that, are, that have occurred and continue to occur uh, in the news. But our focus is, is, is truly on the future and transformational change. Uh, often people refer to the patent experience, a patent report, as a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a new model for policing. Well, that was nearly 20 years ago, so we're looking to create that that next once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a model that will, yes, be, it will address the unique circumstances and characteristics of the Irish environment, but also because policing principles generally um, are similar wherever we are in, in the Democrat and Demo- uh, democracies, uh, we hope that we can create a model that can be replicated in many other corners of the world as well, so that Ireland will be the benchmark, the leading edge, the benchmark that others look to uh, when, uh, when developing policing systems. So our commission and several of uh, my colleagues have uh, joined me here this evening. Um, I won't single them all out because I'll, I'll miss somebody in the process, but just an extraordinary group of people with expertise in policing, criminal justice, human rights, uh, victims' issues, training, technology, change management. And we have people who have led large organizations And so we have very, very diverse backgrounds. Only two of us are career police officers. And that was similar to the experience in Northern Ireland, where only two of us were career police officers. And I think that's extraordinary, because the people, people with objective viewpoints, need to contribute to an exercise like this. I also know from direct experience the value of public consultation, Of getting out and speaking with people who live and work in communities not just in Dublin not just in Galway but in every corner of this country um, in order to to hear what they're looking for from their police because at the end of the day it's the will of the people this is a a democracy and the police should be a part of the community not work apart from the community so we've been listening very carefully, and it's, um, we've had just such great constructive input and feedback from people in every corner of the country. We've been to uh, nearly every county, and by the time we finish our work, we will have been to every county. And when we travel out to public meetings, uh, we also visit Garda stations along the way. So we've been to many Garda stations and listen to frontline Gardee who know the challenges they face and often have some of the best solutions for addressing those challenges. So in addition to uh, hundreds of stakeholder meetings, we've now been to 19 Garda stations in 17 counties uh, we've held eleven public consultation events, and as I said, by the end of the, wor- the the work, we will have been to every place. We've also welcomed written submissions. We've copied some of our experience in the Patent Commission you know we went out and did public meetings there, but we welcomed written submissions as well and we re- we've received several hundred now and again, very thoughtful, constructive recommendations uh, for for the future of policing on this island. Um, I'd like to say that uh, there, are, uh, there are 11 of us. Uh, we represent very different perspectives, uh, but we share a common commitment to getting this right. We have no agenda but to get it right, and we want our work to reflect your views, uh, the views of those living and working in communities here, and the views of, of the police as well. So by September, uh, we have a deadline to submit our, our uh, findings, And, you know, we we intend to make recommendations that will result in transformation of policing here on this island, but still build on that foundation that was established back in the 1920s, you know, not lose that culture, that ethos, respect the history of this country, but give the police and give the community the service that, that they deserve here in this country. We're focusing on... Uh, on several different areas, but we've broken it down into five major categories. Recruitment and training. A police service needs to reflect the community it serves wherever we are in the world. And they need to get the professional development they need to do the job effectively. Governance, oversight, and accountability. Yes, I mentioned that this island is ahead of North America in terms of accountability. But some of those systems, it's time to kind of revisit after 10 or 12 years to determine if the new structures are working appropriately and if they're um, if they're uh, engaging. Uh, together to produce the best oversight Uh, technology antonio spoke of that technology will not be a driver we shouldn't go out and buy the latest greatest thing just because it has the right bells and whistles it has to be a tool that will support the the uh, appropriate operation at the end of the day leadership leadership and structures i came up through the ranks of policing in america We're great cops, we're great detectives, and suddenly we're thrown into the mix where we're responsible for managing thousands of people and hundreds of millions, if not billions, of euros or or dollars um, in in our operating budgets. We need people who have business acumen, who are trained to be leaders and managers, and to work cohesively as teams um, to run these massive operations. And then the role of policing. And again, we hope that your voices will really shape um, our findings in that particular category. So as I said, no agenda but to get it right. I wanna thank all of you for taking the time to come here tonight. There's great interest in this process that's heartening to us to know that people care, that they wanna get this right. We just want our work to be a reflection of your input um, and your feedback. So thank you for taking the time to come tonight.